T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome back to the show, folks. Uh, This is John Rosemond, your host. The program is called Because I Said So. Why is it called Because I Said So? Because I Said So. Um, I have, uh, when I'm up in front of an audience somewhere in America, I, I frequently tell the story of my first grade experience. And, um, first grade, Charleston, South Carolina, 1952-53. The class picture shows 50 children gathered on the front steps of the school. This is where many class pictures were taken back then. You just marched the class out to the front steps of the school, lined everybody up, uh, tallest kids in the back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 50 children in my first grade class, one teacher. So the teacher-pupil ratio is 1 to 5, 0, 50. I want to make that clear. I'm not saying 15. I met a woman in Hartford, Connecticut a few years ago who had taught her first year teaching at age 22, 65 first graders by herself. I met a woman in Miami, Florida shortly thereafter who her third year teaching had taught 70 first graders by herself. I met a woman in Allentown, Pennsylvania, several years after, who had taught 95 first graders by herself in the 1950s. All of these women taught in the early to mid-1950s. There are still classes of over 100 children in rural Africa today, and close to that in other third world countries, being taught by one teacher and very, very effectively. I maintain my first grade teacher had fewer discipline problems in a year than today's first grade teacher is having in the first week of school. When I say that in front of a teacher's audience, everyone agrees that uh, the overall comportment of the child has significantly deteriorated even in the last 10 to 20 years, teachers tell me. Um, The teachers in Hartford, Miami, retired teachers, of course, uh, Hartford, Miami, and Allentown, Pennsylvania, all testified that they had very few discipline problems the entire year. One of the interesting aspects of the 1950s uh, educational experience for people in my generation, uh, baby boomers, uh, relatively early boomers, I was born in 1947. I think the baby boom years start uh, officially in 1945. 
uh, is that most of us came to first grade not knowing our ABCs. Uh, our mothers had not uh, anxiously begun uh, flashcard training with us when we were three years old. Our mothers allowed us to enjoy uh, the uh, the preschool years, just allowed us to be kids, you know, to play, to get dirty, to play in the mud, to play in the rain. Uh, you know, the old saying, water never hurt anybody. And um, it is interesting to me in this context that whereas many, many of today's kids come to first grade today already having started reading, that by the end of first grade, when matched demographically with kids today, we, in 1953, were reading at a higher level than today's kids. Uh, it's the old tortoise and the hare story. Uh, we start out way behind the hare. We end up way ahead of the hare. And in fact, we outperform today's kids at every single grade level. Now, what's important here is a couple of couple of factors. Number one, uh, we came to first grade having already learned to pay attention to a woman. That started in our homes with our mothers, of course. Our mothers occupied their authority very confidently uh, with us, insisted that we pay attention to them, Today's mothers are laboring under the uh, myth that the good mother pays as much attention to her child as she possibly can. I have often maintained, I always, almost always tell an audience, the more attention you pay a child, the less attention the child is going to pay to you. How do you get a child to pay attention? You simply act like you know what you're doing. You act like you do not need a consultation with a three-year-old to know what to do. The other aspect of this, however, is that we did not start learning how to read until we were six years old on average. Again, with rare exception, most people in my generation, when we were kids, we came to first grade, and this is startling to today's Parents, especially in the middle and upper middle classes, we came to first grade not knowing our ABCs. In my case, I knew the song ABCD and so on and so forth, but I could not have correctly identified all 26 letters in upper and lower case. And my mother just, she hadn't spent any time with me on that. I may have asked a few questions, what's this and what's this? And she, of course, answered them. We did not start reading, learning to read until we were six years old. I have maintained over the years that we should not be teaching children to read until they are six or seven years old, that all of the developmental evidence obtained over the years, beginning with people like Jean Piaget, the father of developmental psychology, uh, lends itself to that conclusion. And now a new study has found strong evidence that delaying kindergarten by a year, in other words, instead of putting kids into kindergarten when they're five years old, put them in at six years old, provides mental health benefits to children, allowing them to better self-regulate, this is what the study says, 
their attention spans and hyperactivity level when they start school. The study, which was done uh, by a researcher at Stanford Graduate School and the Danish National Center for Social Research, uh, found that, and now I'm quoting, delaying kindergarten for a year, reduced inattention and hyperactivity by 73% for an average child, and virtually eliminated the probability that an average child would have an abnormal or higher than normal rating for the inattentive hyperactivity behavior measure. So we find, and I'm going to summarize at this point, these researchers found that delaying the entrance of kindergarten by a year, which means delaying the beginning of reading instruction, had numerous behavioral and academic benefits to children. I'm not going to go into all of the findings because we don't have time. But the findings of this study have confirmed what I have said for years. We should not be pushing reading on children at ages three, four, and five. We need to do what countries like Finland and Denmark have been doing all along with great success, and that is delaying the onset of reading instruction until at least age six. Folks, we're up against a hard break. This is John Roseman. The show is called Because I Said So. When we come back, we'll be hearing from a listener from Ohio who disagrees with something I said on a previous program. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. I'm John Rosemond, uh, your host, and we've got a caller on the line from Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. Nadine, how are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing just great. Thanks for calling us. And uh, how can I help you? Well, we have uh, six children, and my um, youngest daughter, who is three years and ten months old, has become a resident graffiti artist. <laughs> she, she, um, ever since she could figure out what a writing utensil does, she uh, has been the one who has made up for all the others who have not drawn on the walls. Um, she, uh, walls, furniture, you know, it, it comes in spurts. Um, we have, we have spanked, we have prayed over her, we have said no, we have banned certain kinds of writing utensils that have seemed to be a problem, but that clearly was not enough agony for her uh, because she pretty much, um, anything that she can find to write with that's been left out within her reach, eventually she writes on the walls with it. And I'm having difficulty trying to figure out how to get her to stop doing this. So it's her issue. I mean, she's almost four years old. She clearly understands the difference between right and wrong. She's not an 18-month-old who's uh, experimenting with crayons. Uh, she's um, This is deliberate on her part. It's deliberate, and it uh, at this age, um, it uh, clearly has taken on a rebellious, defiant aspect. Would you agree? Yes, I would. Uh, she she is getting to be more sneaky about it. And when I catch her in the act 
and she knows it. All I have to do is take her to the wall or wherever she's done it. And, you know, she, she gets her, bows her head or she, she'll say, mommy, please don't thank me. Or, you know, she knows that she's in trouble when I've discovered it. Okay. Well, this is, this has taken on at this point in time, uh, the qualities of a parent child drama. And, uh, by that, I mean, it, it has, taken on the quality of like a soap opera it just uh, it replays itself every single day and the theme really never changes and both people uh, who participate in this drama this parent-child soap opera are locked into um, a very and I don't mean this uh, to to reflect upon your parenting at all Nadine please uh, understand that, but locked into a very dysfunctional, um, circular set of behaviors that are going nowhere. Um, it is almost as if, and I, I hate to sound like a psychologist, but it's almost as if this is part of her role in the family is to act out her rebellious nature in this fashion. And um, you're becoming ex- uh, increasingly, as time goes on, exasperated with all of this. What? Tell me, I mean, you've spanked her. Review again the kinds of things that you've done in response to this. I mean, I know you've talked about it. You've prayed over her. Uh, yes. What else? We, um, well, the most recent thing, uh, the most recent time that I have caught her is um, I have tried to do an early bedtime with her and, and let her know clearly why she has having to go to bed early. So for the last week, we've been doing this, and I don't know if it's too early to tell how effective this has been. I have not caught her recently, but the first few days, I reminded her why she was going to bed early, and then the next few days after that, I said, do you know why you're going to bed early? She said, yes, I was naughty, and I drew on the walls. So, um, you know, it's possible that this is maybe getting through to her, and I'm, I'm not sure how long I should continue this or... Um, the other issue is her bedroom, going to bed early is difficult for her because there is a lot of traffic through her bedroom, the way our house is set up. So I, I want to make sure that whatever we do is effective in getting through to her. Well, I'm not sure that it matters. In the first place, um, you're doing something that I frequently recommend. And in fact, um, I was inclined to say you're reading my mind because that was precisely the approach that I was going to recommend to you. Have you been reading some of my books and other materials? Yes, I have. Okay, so you got that idea out of uh, perhaps the Well-Behaved Child book? Yes, that's correct. Okay, well, good. I mean, because that's exactly what uh, I would recommend, but let's let's try and fine-tune it a bit. In the first place, Nadine, it really doesn't matter as long as she's in bed, as long as she is confined to that, uh, you know, limited square footage. It doesn't matter that there's traffic through her room occasionally, um, as long as she stays in bed, which I... Uh, I sort of take it that she is staying in bed. Is that correct? Uh, sometimes it is. It's hard. I think because she's a very social child. Uh, there are, you know, she has four older siblings, and um, you know, I think it's tempting for her to get out of bed and get involved in what other people are doing because of the through traffic. It, it, it's, uh, our house is set up unusually, and 
um, it can't be helped. And there's not really anywhere else I can put her to isolate her. But more often than not, she's staying in the bed. She occasionally gets out uh, impulsively to join in something that her siblings are doing, but otherwise she's in the bed. I'd say for the most part, yes. Okay, and what time are you putting her to bed? Uh, I, uh, uh, probably, I'd say sometime, somewhere between um, 7 and 7.30. Uh, well, what is her normal bedtime, Nadine? Her normal bedtime is between 8.30 and 9. Okay, well, uh, first thing I would do, and, and for our listeners at home, this is a very effective way of dealing with a broad range of disciplinary issues, is to tell the child, and, and sometimes I have the parents uh, uh, inform the child in this way, that they have talked to a doctor about whatever the issue is, and, and you can just fill in the blank. We talk to the doctor about fill in the blank. In this case, uh, the fact that you draw on walls and you draw on furniture and you draw on, you know, everything under the sun. And uh, we told the doctor that we have tried everything to get you to stop and nothing has worked. And the doctor said, well, when a problem of this sort uh, hangs on like this, and of course you put it in terms that the child will understand, what that means is that the child isn't getting enough sleep. And um, now I'm going to take, I'm going to comment on this. A three and a half year old, four and a half year old, five year old child, this appeals to them. And I'll use that word. It appeals to them. It's credible to them. And the fact that it's not the truth, I mean, people in the Christian community have said, but John, that's lying to the child. And I go, no, 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 no. This is in the child's best interest. Let's accept it is in the child's best interest that the child stop drawing on walls, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is um, not resulting in anything productive. And all of the research has indicated that disobedient children are not happy children, and we need to get her to stop. And in fact, uh, there is no pediatrician that I have ever discussed this with who has any problem with this approach at all. And there are lots of pediatricians now who've read my books who are using these types of approaches. So the uh, uh, back to the what you're telling the child, the doctor has uh, told us that the reason you're continuing to do this, despite the fact that we've punished you in all these ways, means that you're not getting enough sleep. And when a child isn't getting enough sleep, punishment just doesn't work. And so the doctor has told us that we need to put you to bed early uh, every night until the problem in question, again, fill in the blank, has stopped for X number of days, and usually I recommend, and this is a judgment call based on the child's age and the nature of the problem and how long the problem has been a problem, and so on and so forth. So in this case, Nadine, I might say 14 days. Until the problem has stopped for 14 days uh, in a row, uh, we have to put you to bed at this particular time. Um, you put up a 14-block chart on the refrigerator, and every day that she doesn't draw on something inappropriately, you put a check mark or a smiley face in one of the blocks, and she has to uh, go for 14 straight days 
if she goes for 12 days and writes on something on day 13, you take down that chart, you put up a new 14-day chart, she's got to go 14 straight days. Now, uh, is that pretty similar to what you're doing? Uh, I would say that is what I had considered doing. I, we're not that far into it. Um, I haven't put up the charts, but I had read about it and wondered if that would be something that we would do in combination with the early bedtime. Is that what, what you're saying? Yes. The, the, the chart enables the child to see that there's an end in sight. There's a goal in sight. And this okay. is what I meant earlier when I said, let's fine-tune this thing. So fine-tuning number one, put up a 14-day chart. Fine-tuning number two, tell her that you've spoken to a doctor and that he has said, Punishment really doesn't work if a child isn't getting enough sleep. Some children need more sleep than others. And um, so the doctor says we need to put you to bed early. Now, Nadine, I would put her to bed earlier than you are putting her to bed. Okay, like like after supper? Yeah, the earlier you can get her into bed, the stronger the message is going to be. The other aspect to this is that you've transferred the authority in the situation to a third party whose authority the child already recognizes. And um, I have had tremendous success with this approach. And to me, again, going back to this idea that you're not telling the child the exact truth, well, to me, the benefit to the child <laughs> is the bottom line here. And yeah. it is not a good thing for a child to be persisting in rebellious behavior of this sort. This does not lead to a happy child. And you're already seeing that when she bows her head and, and looks ashamed. Um, so we need to get this uh, problem resolved, and, and I think that's the way to do it. Um, Nadine, we're almost out of time. Do you have any other quick questions? Can we fine-tune this anymore for you? Um, I, I guess I just need to look around the house and make sure that I'm not discovering something that I think she has recently done that has actually been something that she did months ago on the wall. Because exactly. sometimes I, I come across something new and I want, because I don't see her do it at the time. Yeah, exactly. Now, do not remove the utensils that she needs. We need to make those available to her. We make we need to make yeah. this somewhat difficult, okay? Nadine, yeah. we're out of time. That was an excellent question. I'm glad you were on the air with us. Folks, we'll be back in a few minutes with more Because I Said So. American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Well, welcome back to the show. Uh, our number is 404-419-6499. If you'd like to be on the air with us with your question, whatever it might be. Occasionally, I get um, calls from people uh with questions of a highly sensitive nature, I'll put it that way. And and because of the nature of the question, I, I really don't want to risk putting these people on the air for fear that someone somewhere, a neighbor, relative, a friend, might recognize their voice or some of the elements of the question 
and put two and two together rather correctly. And uh, so when that happens, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, uh, do what I'm going to do right now, which is I'm going to tell you what the question was, and I'm going to answer the question. And um, so this mother calls in, and she says that she's got a son, 15, who's gotten into looking at porn. Uh, we have given consequences. We've put safeguards on devices. We've jumped through various hoops. Uh, but he finds ways around the safeguards and so on and so forth. We have at this point taken away all of his devices and given him only a dumb, meaning no Wi-Fi access phone. And the mother says anything, uh, he turns it into pornography. She said if a Land's End magazine comes in, he'll sneak it off to his room to look at the uh, pictures of women uh, in underwear. Uh, I find these when I empty most of, most of his room. Anyway, you get the idea. We've done as much as possible, and truth be told, and he has even told us this, that part of him wants to stop and part of him does not want to stop. He is homeschooled, and so we don't give him many privileges. He works part-time, spends a lot of time working with my husband, and we actually have a good relationship with him outside of this issue. So do you have any advice? All right. This is an excellent question in several different ways. First of all, with the relatively easy access to the Internet that teens enjoy these days, porn surfing has become a very common problem, and not only with teens, I dare say, but also with adult males, although the adjective adult of course, must be used loosely to refer to chronological status only. Second, the question illustrates a very important parenting principle. Now, this may seem like a detour, but bear with me. I fairly frequently refer to Mick Jagger's theorem. For those of you who might be asking who, pray tell, is or was Mick Jagger, Mick is the lead singer for the world's greatest rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones, a title they acquired by default when Led Zeppelin disbanded. Mick's theorem is a famous line from a song of the same title, You Can't Always Get What You Want. When I refer to Mick's theorem, it is usually to comment on the fact that children need to be confronted with this life principle because the person who grows up believing that he deserves to have whatever he wants is in deep, deep, deep trouble for one reason or another. A good number of people who grow up believing they deserve to have what they want become criminals. A good number become politicians. Did I really say that? And an equally good number are very unhappy. So, I am a strong advocate of depriving children of at least 50% of what they want. Think about it. What percent of what you want have you been able to acquire in your lifetime? The average person, at least this would be my life experience, is able to acquire no more than about 33 and a third percent of what they want. That's probably, in fact, a very liberal estimate. But let's say it's true. I mean, for argument's sake. Very wealthy people may be able to acquire 66 and two-thirds of what they want, 
And that may be a conservative estimate. I imagine, for example, that Donald Trump, a.k.a. the Donald, does not want for much. I don't think the Donald ever says, gosh, I wish I had, and then fill in the blank. So maybe he's been able to acquire 99% of what he wants, but he's the exception. The typical rich person defined as the top 5% probably has to be satisfied with no more than two-thirds of what he or she wants. So splitting the difference, I say children should be deprived of at least 50% of what they want. Some people, no doubt, would say that even that is overly generous, but let's go with it anyway. But here's the deal, if you will. Mick's theorem, you can't always get what you want, applies to parents as well. If you are a parent, you can't always get the child you want. I'm going to say that again because this is a very important understanding. If you are a parent, you can't always get the child you want. In fact, most parents don't get exactly the child they want. They get a close approximation at best. They want an obedient child. They get a a disobedient child or a child who's disobedient much of the time. They want a child who's grateful for what he gets. Instead, they get a child who's demanding and ungrateful, and so on and so forth. Further, parents who try to take the child they get and turn him into the child they want usually end up being very, very frustrated, even angry. So the parents who ask this question about their 15-year-old who's into pornography of various kinds, did not get the child they wanted. They got a close approximation. He is, after all, got a lot of positives. He's responsible. He's got a good work ethic. He's polite, well-mannered, and so on. But he's into pornography. And he's been into it long enough to be addicted to it. And the parents have tried... uh, Let me stop there. You, You know, when you're taking... When you're taking clothing catalogs off into your room to stare at pictures of women in underwear, you are addicted to pornography. And these parents have tried everything to prevent him from having access to pornography. Nothing has worked. He figures out how to get around their roadblocks every single time. That's further evidence, by the way, that he's addicted. They've tried everything they can think of to get him to realize the error of his ways, but he just keeps right on finding ways to get to pornography. In all honesty, I really can't think of anything these parents haven't done that they should have done. What? Maybe send him to a monastery in Tibet? So here's what I have to say to these parents. First, this is not your fault. This is your son's fault. It is his doing. You did not make some egregious parenting mistake that has caused him to be doing this. Pornography is not his way of filling some emotional void you created in his life. He's not doing this because dad's done a bad job of teaching respect for women and so on. He's doing this because he has made a decision He, using the power of his free will, has made a decision. Second, 
This is not a psychological phenomenon. It is not the result of low self-esteem, social anxiety, some weird attitude toward women, disorder in his brain chemistry. None of that stuff's been proven anyway. It's the 21st century equivalent of Aristotle's humors. And psychopharmaceutical drugs, by the way, are the 21st century equivalent of voodoo, but I digress. This is not a psychological phenomenon. This is sin, pure and simple. Sin, S-I-N. Your son doesn't need therapy. He needs to repent, ask God's forgiveness, and call the healing power of the Holy Spirit, the wonderful counselor, into his life. But that's up to him, not you. You can tell him that's what he needs to do. You can tell him that he's as much as, and excuse me for being so blunt here, but I'm just going to say it. You can tell him that his obsession with pornography amounts to raping the women he is looking at on screen or in these magazines. That is no doubt what Jesus would say or agree with. Read Matthew 5.27 and 5.28. Third, your ability to steer your son in the right direction concerning this issue is very limited. It is limited by his free will, which is a very powerful force. Read Genesis chapter 3 if you want a take on that. And it's even more powerful when a person's free will is taken over by sin. I often ask parents this question, can you accept that you are not your child's personal savior? Can you accept that trying to be his savior is a form of blasphemy, a form of idolatry? Can you accept that you are not the agent of change in your child's life concerning the issue at hand? That the appointed agent of change may not come into your child's life until he's an adult, until he's 60 years old even. Everyone has heard stories of that sort. In situations like this, parents are obligated to do their best, which you are already obviously doing. Parents are obligated to pray. Parents are obligated to leave the rest up to their children and the Holy Spirit. So, here's the parenting principle I mentioned in the beginning of this monologue. You can do all the right things. You can be the best parent possible, and your child is still capable of doing bad stuff. And I mean really bad stuff. That is why we desperately, all of us, need Jesus. That is why God took human form 2,000 years ago and made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf so that we could be saved from the consequences of our own sinful inclinations. So, parents ask, well, John, if we've done all the right things and our child keeps doing bad stuff, what should we do then? And my answer is, keep doing the same right things And perhaps most important of all, keep praying. This is John Roseman, Because I Said So. Our number is 404-419-6499. Or if you'd prefer to email, it's radio at roseman.com. I'll be back in a moment with your calls.
Welcome back to the show. John Roseman, your host, and we're going straight to the phones. We've got Christina on the phone from Ohio. Christina, how are you doing, and how can I help you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. I was calling because I was listening to a previously aired show when you were talking about um, a young teenager who was working for a lady with horses. Yes. And um, the advice that you gave her um, was basically to sever all ties as quickly as possible with this girl. And as soon as I heard that, my I don't know, I, my kind of stomach just kind of dropped. Um, as a Christian, I feel that, you know, this woman has an opportunity with an unchurched teenager to try to witness to her and try to disciple her coming from an unchristian home. Um, where else is she going to get that? I, I guess I, I, had a, I took an issue with you telling her to just sever all ties. Well, let's let me review for our listeners who may not have heard that program what the issue was. Uh, this uh, older woman, and she was probably in her fifties or sixties, runs a stable, and she had called about a sixteen-year-old girl who uh, was one of the customers at the stable, and the girl was um, abusing the horses. She had caught the girl abusing the horses. Um, and to be very honest with you, either I can't remember, Christina, the specifics of the abuse, or she was not specific. But she mm-hmm. did, I remember, say that she treated the horses very roughly at times. And the implication was that when the horse did not do what this girl wanted the horse to do, that she would react in this very abusive manner toward the horse. And it wasn't just verbal abuse. It was physical abuse toward the horses. Um, is that a fair description of the problem? Yeah, I think that was um, what the lady was saying. And I guess um, my opinion would be, if I were to give somebody advice like this, I would say, you know, yes, um, this girl... Um, is, is having some issues with some anger, um, but I don't personally know what what her home life situation is, and this could be an opportunity to to try to come alongside the girl and not leave her with your animal with your animals by herself, but to say try to to teach her and come alongside her, and she might have some issues internally. I don't. I don't think she's. I don't think I'd call her narcissistic, um, as you did. I'd just call her a teenage girl with some issues. And uh, I. Ju- I just feel that as a Christian, when you have a, a situation like that, just completely um, cutting off. What. What good is that going to do for the girl? How can. How is she going to get a Christian influence if not from you? Well, th- those are good concerns, Christina, and, and and it gives me an opportunity to explain to you and our listeners as well where I was coming from. Um, number one, the woman who owned the stable was clearly describing a 16-year-old who is exhibiting seriously sociopathic, is what psychologists call it, sociopathic behaviors. By definition... Sociopathic individuals are highly narcissistic. So therefore, that's why I use the term, this child is narcissistically sociopathic, uh, because the two terms actually go together. Now, it is uh, recognized within my profession 
And anyone who's listened to the show up until this point in time knows I don't have a lot of affection for my profession, but there are some areas of agreement uh, between myself and the general psychological community, and this would be one of them, that the general consensus in the psychological profession is that individuals who exhibit, again, what I call narcissistic sociopathy, these are not people who are easily reached by any form of reasoning. Uh, And the older they are, and most of the research indicates that sociopathic behavior is fairly well established by the early teenage years, the older they are, the more difficult they are to reach. Um, I agree, Christina, that to the greatest degree possible, we Christians should look for opportunities to witness to other people. Under ideal circumstances, I would love to have recommended to this woman that she witness to this young girl. I think the woman has an overarching, however, obligation to the animals that she is responsible for to protect them. And that is why I indicated to this woman that this young girl has some toxic aspects to her behavior and that she needs to protect her horses, that despite her good intentions, and as I recall, this was a very well-intentioned older woman who was looking for an opportunity to resolve the situation, uh, I told her that she needed to sever this relationship as quickly as possible. The scripture that I would draw upon in this regard, uh, to begin with Matthew 13, 10, um, I, would, uh, I would maintain that even Jesus did not witness to everybody. He did not witness to Pilate. He did not witness to the Pharisees. And he told his disciples in Matthew 13, 10, that they were not obligated to witness to everybody. He said, and I'm quoting here, when the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to them, the people, the crowds and parables? He answered, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. Uh, But whoever, and I'm skipping over some lines, whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, and so on and so forth. And he refers then to the prophecy in Isaiah. Uh, Elsewhere, he talks about if... um, The people of a village are not receptive to the disciples that they should leave and shake the dust off their feet. I suddenly feel like Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, who I'm sure can answer this better than I can. But nonetheless, I think it's important for us as Christians to look for opportunities to witness to other people. However, I think we need to be discriminating And I think we need to realize that there are people who are simply not ready and who may never be ready for the witness that we can provide them, Uh, that more needs to happen in their lives before any witness from us 
is going to be effective. And I don't think that the Lord expects us to beat ourselves, uh, beat our heads against brick walls of that sort. No, I, I, I agree with part of what you're saying. Um, but the Bible also talks about um, that we should disciple people, especially the young, um, and to teach them the ways that they should be living um, and how to be self-controlled and pure. And, and a young woman isn't going to learn that, obviously, by her unchristian parents. And so I believe that the Lord puts people into your life and gives you opportunities to witness to them. And um, on, your, on your show, the woman never really talked about um, addressing the issue um, with the girl. And, and when I say addressing the issue, I'm, she's a teenage girl. She has hormones. She's, her body's telling her she's a woman, um, but the world is telling her she's still a girl, and she's confused. And I think just to throw her into a sociopathic narcissist, um, is a little, I don't know. Well, I understand where you're coming from. The reason I said that, uh, Christina, is because 16-year-olds who abuse animals, this is a primary marker. This is not an indication of a girl who's confused because her body says she's a woman and the culture says she's a child. Um, this is not an anger issue. This is abuse of animals. And yeah, but that that tends to come from from anger at home. I mean, I was a teenage girl; it was it wasn't that long ago, and I can remember things at home would happen, and I would get I would get mad, I would get angry, and I wouldn't abuse animals, but I would I'd be really short. I would I would um, talk nasty to somebody who was just trying to help me, and so my thing is, um, I think that this woman she didn't really talk about trying to come alongside this girl at all. And I'm not saying she should be with your animals by themselves, but I think there could have been an opportunity to just say, hey, you know, I I see um, that you really do have a passion for horses. Um, I don't I don't feel comfortable leaving you with them by myself, by yourself, but why don't you come on this day? We'll work with them together um, and open an opportunity for the girl to... She could say, no, I'm not doing that, that's stupid. Well, let me interject here, Christina, that the operative phrase that you employed in describing yourself and the fact that there were times when your parents upset you and you became angry is, I never abused animals. And uh, again, the abuse of animals is a primary marker of narcissistic sociopathy, and these are toxic people And that is why I recommended that this woman sever her contacts with this individual and her family. I didn't think, and we agree to disagree, I hope, about this. I simply did not feel that this situation was going to go in any productive direction and that there was no way to move it in a productive direction. So that is why I uh, recommended what I recommended. Christina, thanks for an excellent call, and um, thanks to you all for joining the program. Uh, Upcoming events, John Roseman speaking engagements in the next few weeks, Johns Creek, Georgia, Rancho Santa Fe, California, Anaheim, California, Honolulu, and Maui, Hawaii. This has been John Roseman with Because I Said So, a call-in program all about parenting. Next week, we'll get together at the same time, so be here with us. Why? Because I said so. 
from Creative Genius Productions and the American Family Radio Network.